In today's episode, we open up the Gospel of Mark to chapter 9, verses 2 through 29. In his transfiguration, Jesus has an amazing and miraculous encounter with Moses and Elijah, revealing his glory to three of the disciples who were there to witness it. Later, at the foot of the mountain, a desperate father asks Jesus to heal his demon-afflicted son after the disciples failed to do so. And with compassion, Jesus rebukes the evil spirit and heals the boy. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, November 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. As always, Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, to help us open up the transfiguration and the healing that follows is the Reverend Adam DeGroote. He's the pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Good morning, Pastor DeGroote. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's good to be here. Well, so happy to have you. This is an interesting text. Uh, you know, we're getting Mark's perspective, of course, but at the same time, you know, we can compare it to some of the other uh, examples of the transfiguration, but so much to learn just from this, this episode here. And so I'm really excited to get into it. Um, other than that, uh, you know, anything you want to lay down the foundation for before we open our time together in prayer? Uh, nothing really uh, too much to add in terms of uh, what you put in the introduction. So uh, we'll, we'll see where the text leads us today. And uh, we certainly know that the Spirit will guide us in that study. Excellent. Wonderful. Would you open our time together in prayer then? We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our benefit. So now be with Pastor Boo and I as we read, mark, and inwardly digest your holy scriptures. Send your Holy Spirit. Be with us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we were together yesterday, we ended with chapter 9, verse 1, which really kind of went with the previous narrative. And it's Jesus saying to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then we move into our text for today, which I'm going to go ahead and read the first section of. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. All right, that's the end of verse 8. Let's just pause there. So uh, Mark says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, we get a, a little bit of a different time period from um, the other synoptics, but the six days really recalls Moses, doesn't it? As from Exodus, waiting, a six-day waiting period prior to ascending Mount Sinai, at least 
At least that's one connection that I've seen made. Yeah, it's it's good. And and, and I was looking through Pastor Bell's uh, commentary from uh, our wonderful publishing house, uh, Concordia Publishing House. And six days is a is a pretty important uh, time frame. Another, of course, reference that we have for that is that uh, our Lord uh, gives us creation in six days and rests on the seventh. And I think. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's the other thing that's so important too about that first verse that we're studying today, verse two, is that the the, the reference to a mountain, and uh, you know, there's certainly emphasis or uh, um, really important things that happen whenever you see Jesus or his disciples going up onto mountains. And I think the other thing too, in in terms of Mark, and as you mentioned, Pastor Boo, at the very beginning, uh, Mark is is very different, and you see this once we get into chapter, or rather, verse four, is. Mark's different in terms of his transfiguration account, in terms of the ordering. Um, Matthew and Luke both mentioned Moses first, uh, but Mark actually is uh, mentioning Elijah first. And we'll talk about a little bit about that um, as we get into that verse a little bit later. But yeah, the six days is, is um, uh, certainly something that is uh, an important reference in the first part of the, the chapter. Do we make any hay out of the fact that Luke says it happened about eight days later. Um, I mean, you know, there, there, we have enemies of the gospel out there who are frequently yeah. looking to try to disparage and discourage people from trusting it. And, well, frankly, we have situations like that. So Luke's expression, about eight days later, I mean, is that just an expression? I mean, how do you see it? Well, I, I think it's funny you bring that up. And, 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 you know, when you say just an expression, of course, at the, at the seminary, the, the, or the professor, the, the person who wrote the, uh, the commentary on Luke is uh, Art Just. And uh, he's constantly remembering how it is that Luke is is constantly referencing the number eight, eight days, the eighth uh, day, the important. The, the So in other words, I don't think that skeptics can make too much hay out of this in the sense that, OK, this is more um, what I would say is is, is is Mark's understanding of of. You know the, the the greater context of the gospel that he's that he's writing to his people. And that's the beauty of how it is that God uses uh, the men to 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 write these uh, gospels is that is Mark is is emphasizing something different than Luke. Luke is emphasizing more that eternal eschatological eighth day, whereas that's where I would think that Luke is using that 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 number there. Mark is using the number six, in some ways maybe to to reference to to Moses, but interestingly enough, I think <clears throat> he's probably um, referencing more uh, the fact that okay. But our Lord is resurrected on the seventh day, and that seventh day is indicative of the resurrection of the dead, which then, interestingly, in Mark's account of the Transfiguration, uh, is the main emphasis of the Transfiguration. Is um, Thinking about Mark 16 and the resurrection of the dead is that Jesus wants Peter, James, and John to understand that he is the one who has come who will be resurrected from the dead. So this emphasis of six, of course, giving this, leading to seven, is an emphasis of the new creation that is going to come in Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the propitiation, the atonement of our sins. I think that's incredibly helpful. And as as listeners contemplate what you're saying, I think it's important for them to know that you can be, creative is not the right word, but, but the liberty that they have with the message, they're both truthful, but also they emphasize things for a point. I think of John in his emphasis on light and darkness and a lot of the irony he uses. Um, you know, Nicodemus is coming at night, 
but he mentions it not only as a fact, but also as a as sort of a theme of Nicodemus's mm-hmm. movement from darkness to lightness and faith. And, and here, and I hear that's what you're saying. So really, after six days is the same thing as about eight days. And about eight days still falls within the realm of possibilities for after six days. Yeah. So for all we know, it could have been seven days or it could have been whatever, but they're making the emphasis different because of their overarching themes. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. But then, I, but then it, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, then I think it's interesting that we have this this imagery, but then why does Jesus take Peter, James, and John? I mean, I think that's something that's always stuck out in my mind. You know, we have disciples and we have these apostles, but then there's been argued throughout the church on whether there's a ranking among them. And yet Peter, James, and John, especially Peter, tends to be kind of in the inner inner circle. Maybe that's not a fair way of looking at it. Why Peter, James, and John, do you think? Well, I, th- I think it's funny because, I mean, depending on what commentary you read, there was one I read in my preparation for today that said the reason Jesus took these three is because they were the troublemakers. And, and I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have any reason to believe that that's the case. And then in terms of the ranking uh, of this, in terms of, of, of preference, it's not necessarily, it's not possible uh, that Jesus loves uh, one more than another. I mean, that's that's not possible. Jesus is love incarnate. He is love himself. Um, but I think it's really interesting. Peter is probably one, especially as we you know we've just celebrated Reformation a couple you know a couple weeks ago. Um, just to say, of course, we know that our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters so often emphasis uh, emphasize Peter as as the first pope. Um, but if nothing more, what we see in the book of Acts is that Peter is certainly one of the ones that's, you know, predominant in terms of the growth of the, of the church as it's, as it goes out from Jerusalem to Antioch, et cetera, so on. But the other thing that's interesting too, is that you have James, uh, who's here too. And, and, and this is, I kind of reference this to the people at Calvary who said, you know, if, if our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters are right about the Pope at all, which I don't think they are. Um, James, actually, as you get into the Jerusalem Council, specifically in the book of Acts, James is probably the most prominent one in terms of speaking with authority in the early church. So going back to your question, Pastor Boo, is to say, I think it's important that Jesus is bringing and and has sort of set aside these particular men to be eyewitnesses of of not just this glorious um, light being emitted, not just the glory of God being given, because of course Peter will write about this particular event in Second Peter, um, because and Peter will then in that, that that particular book or that epistle will say we have something that's more confidence than even seeing with our own eyes, um, and that's you know that's an important thing. But going back to what you're you're talking about is that make no mistake, Jesus is setting aside these particular men as the ones to whom the gospel will go first, and though they are the first ones to do it, it's not just for them. Their commission is to go out and to teach this gospel, um, to teach of this glory that comes in the resurrection of Jesus to all who will hear uh, that gospel message. I, I think that's great insight on it. And he takes them up there, but I did not have, I've not read that they were the troublemakers. So I'm just imagining yeah. him saying, you know, hey, you got to come with me. I don't want you to cause any trouble. Or maybe it's a scared straight kind of moment. Yeah, I, well, obviously we have a lot of speculating when we um, when we do this, when we think of this sort of an academic exercise. But at the same time, what we're told very clearly is that he does. He takes them up by themselves. He's transfigured before them. But even that word transfigured, you know, metamorphosis or metamorphosis, you know, it, it's 
I think it's hard for us to get our, our minds around, which is why it's helpful that Mark gives us sort of this uh, incarnate kind of description, right? Really bright, extremely heavily bleached clothing. I mean, obviously that's not doing it justice, but you know, he's having to condescend to human language and, but, but, but Jesus is transfigured in this amazing way. Uh, what, what, why, what's the, what's sort of the point of all this transfiguration and, and appearing with Elijah and Moses? What does this teach us? And what is it teaching these three disciples? Yeah, this is where we're starting to get really into the, into the thick of the gospel. Um, because, Mark's understanding, and it's kind of an interesting thing because we don't we don't read backwards. Um, you know, we don't unless we're reading Hebrew. But I digress. <laughs> so this reference, this reference we have here of this 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 bright shining light is is not just an event in isolation. Luke is going to excuse me. Mark is going to be using the very same language um, on the day of the resurrection, most specifically uh, in Mark chapter sixteen, verse five. Where we see that the same that the man that's at the tomb is going to be shining with the same sort of uh, bright light uh, that 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 Jesus is in, in in chapter nine of Mark. The other thing that's important too is to say, okay, it's not as if you know uh, God the Father in heaven is shining a spotlight onto Jesus. What we have to understand here is that Jesus is Himself light. He is emitting this light, and I think the emphasis of clothing is is kind of an interesting thing too, is to say. You know, why does, you know, his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them, as the ESV says it, is to say, it's interesting to me, why does Mark emphasize his clothing when in reality, um, it's Jesus who is light incarnate, or the word incarnate, who is shining this, this, this light onto these particular disciples that he's chosen. And then, like you said before, as you get into verse four, um, another interesting thing happens, as we were talking about before, is that Mark then emphasizes Elijah first and Moses second. And then we see how Peter doesn't quite understand that. He, he goes back to, to start to reference Moses first, the Feast of Booths, et cetera, so on, building temples, building tent, you know, tents, et cetera, so on. So there's a lot of confusion that comes in this particular text, but 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 it's not to be mistaken with the reality that Jesus has not brought them there necessarily, <clears throat> excuse me, to say that this is where you will find the glory, the glory, but you will find the glory on the day that I will be resurrected, which Jesus will talk about when he says to the disciples, tell no one of what you've seen. Okay, and that sort of ties in with what, what the what voice from heaven says is, is basically what he says is, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And I think those two things are, have to be understood together is to say, don't go and say what it is that you've seen. Go and tell people what it is that you've heard. And then this is an important thing in the gospel of Mark 2, Mark because we're kind of in the middle of the, very much in the middle of the gospel, is to say Mark's gospel is moving from this idea of miracles and how God is coming to his people through those signs to moving into this section now in the latter part of Mark where Jesus is going to be inclined a little bit more to, to be teaching them, to be telling them how it is that, you know, Moses and the prophets or Elijah and Moses spoke of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Namely, he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of these promises. And then it gets even hairier when Mark actually seems to start emphasizing that, okay, well, who's this Elijah? Who's the Elijah that's here? Was it John the Baptist or is Elijah Jesus? And I think that's the thing that really threw me for a loop is to say, 
I think the emphasis in Mark's gospel is that actually Jesus is the true Elijah, the prophet, the prophecy, and the fulfillment. It's sort of, it's mind-blowing. It's pretty amazing. Mm. Well, and we haven't read those verses yet. We're going to add yeah. them to our conversation here in just a second. But I do have to point out before we move on to that, frankly, more interesting point, but I think it's, I think it's uh, fascinating, Peter's response. Uh, and, and Mark does give us a little explanation for his, frankly, asinine response, because yeah. Peter says to Jesus, teacher, you know, this is pretty good that we're here. Let's, let's make a tent for everybody. And it's like the most, first of all, understatement of the universe. It's good that we are here. Yeah, to witness the divine majesty of the creator of the universe who's become incarnate to save you from your sins. Yeah, this is pretty good. But but he wants, and this is how I've often preached it, but he, he wants this moment, it seems, to last forever, and why wouldn't he? So he's like, hey, here's three tents. We'll give everybody a place to stay. Yep. But thankfully, Mark tells us what we're all thinking. Verse six, he didn't know what to say. They were afraid. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and this is like, you know, we were saying too, is that, okay, what is he afraid of? Is he afraid of just the brightness, brightness of the light, the, the, the presence of Jesus that's before him, uh, the presence of Moses and Elijah? What is it that he's really terrified of? And, and of course, I think it is all those things. If we were in Peter's position, I think we'd respond. I mean, I know I would. Uh, respond in very much the same way, but I think we we can even take it a little bit step a little one step further and say, okay, what Peter is 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 really wanting, and we'll see this once we get to the Father later in the in the chapter, is Peter and the disciples are really starting to wonder, well, okay, if these prophecies of chapter eight are true, that Jesus is going to be the one who's crucified, who's going to die, they're going to start asking the questions, well, who's going to be the next in charge? Who's going to be the one who's going to take his position? Peter thinks it's, it's, it's a, good, a good place to be, which is true. But the other thing that Peter really doesn't like, and we see this in Matthew's gospel, is Peter really doesn't like the prospect of the fact, the prospect that Jesus is going to have to suffer and die. And, he, and, and it's not just that he doesn't like that for Jesus, because Jesus will make this clear in, the other, in, in other gospels too, is to say, I will suffer but you'll suffer too. And I think that's a really hard thing for Peter to understand and to, and to digest. Um, of course, we understand in the book of Acts that Peter begins to see what this looks like. Um, but here in the, book of, in the book of Mark, you know, if nothing more, what we see is Peter is not just wrestling with you know, the, 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 the presence of holiness, et cetera, so on. He's wrestling, I think, more acutely with the fact that Jesus is going to have to suffer. And that he himself will have to suffer too, because it would not have been unknown for any of them that um, not just theologically, but just politically and practically, if Jesus goes on to suffer at the hands of, say, the Romans, uh, they're not going to usually stop with Jesus. So, right. And I think that Peter's, you know, both his concern for the Messiah and his self-concern, you know, you said earlier he struggles with this concept that he might have to suffer and I think, don't we all continue to today? I mean, so mm -hmm. many people look at the faith as, well, the opium of the masses, right? The ability to just have no worries and be peaceful. And, you know, I, I can think of a, a C.S. Lewis quote that's good about that. But the point is, you know, yeah, the, the Christian faith is one that calls us to endure suffering. And I think that goes so against both human nature and uh, against the American ideal of, 
well, no, I, I want to avoid suffering at all costs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yet, and I think that's the other comfort that, that Jesus will talk about as he gets into, into verses nine through 13 is because what Mark is going to do is he's going to tell us, well, what's going to happen with these fellows, Peter, James, and John, um, after they come from this Mount of Transfiguration is, is, you know, and I think the other gospel writers, specifically Matthew and Luke, really do a good job is to say, you know, well, I'm taking you from this mountaintop, but I, Jesus, I dwell down here in the valleys with you. I'm at the mountain. I'm in the valleys. Wherever it is that you are, wherever I go, you go and vice versa. You go with me. I go with you. I'm with you, even though you be in the valley of the, the shadow of death, which is what we understand from Psalm 23. And so here's Peter, who's a good Jew. And we see that in verse five, you know, he's remembering you know, these, these festivals that he's supposed to, 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 to remember as a, as a good Jewish boy, specifically the Feast of Booths. Um, but the Feast of Booths was a feast of, of celebration of the harvest, et cetera, so on. And that's really kind of an amazing thing because here is Jesus just about ready to ascend to the cross where he will draw all people to himself. And yet Peter is, is, is not wanting to go down into that valley um, with our Lord and, and our Lord with him. Let's go ahead and add some verses to the conversation, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So right before they descend the mountain, we have this cloud overshadowing them, the voice out of the cloud, a lot of imagery to both Jesus' baptism and the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire uh, out in the wilderness. Uh, lots of, I guess lots of, I don't want to say themes as if it's some sort of fiction, but uh, lots of indicators of God's presence coming into reality and crashing to, into one another right here. Um, and Some of the ones that you've been bringing up, the foreshadowing, the connections to God's activity in the Old Testament, it's amazing. But then as they're coming down the mountain, he reveals to them, Again, right? That he's going to rise from the dead, but they still they're like, I what what is what is what does that mean, right? <laughs> yes. Well, and and, and right. I mean, it's, it, you see how it is that Mark is here in verse seven. And of course, they didn't have the markation demarcations uh, originally. So this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So in other words, what are we supposed to listen to? Um, most specifically, really, I think it's four things. You know, he's God. He's man. He's set aside, the one set aside by God, and he's the atoning sacrifice. Um, and everything that Moses has said pointed to Christ. Everything Elijah said is pointing to Christ. But then all of a sudden, in verse 8, that you get to this transition, and they no longer saw anyone but Jesus. Okay, that's good. And I think that emphasis is, is, is really twofold. One, in the sense that, okay, here's Peter who doesn't see Jesus anymore. And as he doesn't see, it's kind of like, you know, it's this out of sight, out of mind thing for Peter. But in the previous verse, he says, 
basically, I'm going to be with you. The Father is saying this. Jesus is going to be with you. Hear him. And then it says in verse 8, and suddenly they look around and they know, saw no one but Jesus only. So in other words, what they see is Jesus, the one that Moses and Elijah had spoken of. And they also have what they've heard, namely that he is, that he is God, man, etc., so on, who has come to be the one who will be resurrected from the dead for the forgiveness of sin, crucified and resurrected from the dead for the forgiveness of, of our sins and our justification. And yet, you know, and this is where we said, kind of get to this part too, where it says, you know, I dis disagree with the idea of Peter, James, and John being the troublemakers, because as they return back, back down the hill, what they realize is that there's, and we'll get to this in a second, is that there's been an argument over or with the scribes of, from the other disciples. And yet here's Peter, James, and John <laughs> continuing to wrestle yep. with what it is that's just happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, and and also once again, and you you alluded to this earlier. He tells them to keep the matter to themselves, mm -hmm. and so they still they did they didn't say anything. It says right here they kept the matter to themselves. They struggled with what the rising from the dead might mean. But I, I was thinking, if they're troublemakers, <laughs> then they're 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 probably not going to you know keep the Lord's word. I mean, there's all kinds of indicators that that's probably a wrong way to go with it. Right, but they, right. They do seem to understand. Uh, perhaps from their own upbringing, Malachi, you know, says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day that Yahweh comes. So here we have them questioning, isn't Elijah to have come? And, and, and Jesus says he has come, but he's speaking of John the baptizer, right? Yes. And, and, and that, that's the great <laughs> thing, Pastor Boo. I mean, you know, how Mark treats this is, is, is so wonderful because one, they believe what they've seen because they've seen glory. They don't want to believe that Jesus has to go and to die. And that's why they wrestle with, what, what does this mean? This resurrected from the, what does this resurrection from the dead mean? Because they believed in, in the general resurrection of the dead, namely the, the, the raising of the dead on the last day. But, but they couldn't understand, well, wait a second. In order for this Jesus, in order for this you know, Jesus to be raised from the dead, that, that would mean that he has to die, but wait a second. And then once again, we're back to that, that problem of, well, wait a second. He's going to have to die. He's going to have to suffer. And so they're, they're not quite understanding what's necessarily going on. So they believed in the general resurrection, but couldn't understand how it was that Jesus would be raised from the dead, namely from being crucified. Um, and then they asked the question, I mean, why do the scribes, and this is, it's, it's so hilarious because in verse 11, and they asked him, Okay, remember what the fathers just said to them. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And then what is, what's the question they ask? Well, why do the scribes say? Mm. <laughs> so you can exactly. see how, dis how distracted they are is to say, yeah, yeah, we know everything you've just done, Jesus. But, but, but those scribes we've also been listening to say this. And, and look at the compassion that Jesus has. He doesn't say, uh, yet. He doesn't say, why do I have to be with you? That'll come later. What Jesus does is entertains this, and he says, okay, well, Elijah has come. Okay, and that goes back down to what, you know, what you've talked about or what you read in verse 13 is to say, but I tell you, Elijah has come. But there's an important part in verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. That's the key part there, to restore all things. John the Baptist, so here you have Jesus talking both about 
or really about three things. Elijah the prophet that we've just seen at the transfiguration. But John the Baptist who has come, who's the forerunner. But John the Baptist didn't restore all things. This is where we start to see that Mark is actually making the point that, wait a second, maybe there's another Elijah that's here who does restore all things. But then we have to ask the question, what does it mean to restore all things, to make things new? And this goes back to that six days that we talked about in verse two, is to say, Jesus is coming to restore all things, namely to give forgiveness of sins, to give life and salvation, to 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 take us from being sinful people to being the holy ones of God. And he's going to bestow all of this as the one who is, you know, he's he, he's he's not just the, the greatest of all prophets, he's the fulfillment of the prophecy. So he's the one, Elijah, who has restored all things. It's fascinating how Mark does this. It really is, and that's something we're going to have to contemplate as we take our break. So folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor DeGroat and I will keep on going through Mark chapter 9. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Adam DeGroat. He's the pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Right now, we're in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we've just been contemplating the Transfiguration. Before we head back into our text, I just want to remind you that if you have any feedback, questions, comments, maybe you have your own perspective on Mark, perhaps we've said something that you're confused about, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Well, Pastor, getting back to the text, uh, we were you were just presenting to us this fascinating view of, of, of Mark, and he's really answering, I guess, the question of the or starting to hint at the elephant in the room, which is if John the baptizer is Elijah, who's come to restore all things, quote unquote, that that language coming from Malachi and uh, also Syriac for what it's worth. And mm-hmm. and so we, we see that the, the Elijah is going to come and restore all things, but, but John the baptizer didn't restore all things. And most of the commentaries that I read on this will say something to the very generous effect of, well, John the Baptist did come as the new Elijah, which I believe is true, and he did turn many hearts to, to uh, toward the Christ, uh, certainly, and that's true. But that's a little different than restoring all things, right, brother? It's very much very different, you know, because— even John the baptizer will say, uh, you know, that that he he must decrease Jesus increases. And, and it's 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 not just a showing a deference to John the baptizer understands even from the time that he's he's an infant in his in his mother's womb as he leaps at the presence of of, of our Lord is 
that this Jesus is the one who is going to come, as we mentioned before the break, who's going to give forgiveness. Because, of course, I mean, Jesus is coming in the same way that John the Baptist is, too. John, John preaches a, a message of repentance. So does Jesus. And Jesus yet is also continuing to, to, to make the point to his disciples that he is the one who's coming to give forgiveness, to give healing, the casting out of demons, and he's also going to be raising the dead. All of this is going to be making things new and restoring all things. And so how Mark treats this specifically in verse 12 is, is to say, yes, John the baptizer is this Elijah. And we see this in John's clothing, his message, how it is that he, he, he saw to his ministry. But also, John, or rather, Mark is giving us this emphasis is to say, what Jesus is saying here is that, okay, um, I'm not restoring all things yet. I will restore all things on that day that I am resurrected, which is why we see that language of, of, of brightness, et cetera, so on in, in, in Mark 9, but also connected to Mark chapter 16, where the resurrection and the transfiguration are connected. It's fascinating. Well, and you mentioned earlier about how the voice from heaven says, listen to my son, and the first thing they ask is about something the scribes have said. Right. The disciples do this kind of stuff all the time. You know, I think of that one incident, and I can't recall where, but, you know, John points his disciples to Jesus, and then they go, oh, and they start following Jesus. And it's like, well, okay, that makes sense. You know, that's the point of John's ministry. And then yeah. you have Jesus's disciples who are concerned about, well, everything else. It's like, oh, okay, you've just shown yourself to be God himself. But what about the Elijah guy, Jesus? Tell us about that guy first. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, why? I mean, yeah. what does it even matter at that point? But well, obviously, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have you have the disciples kind of being, you, you asked the question earlier about, you know, out, those outside the church or otherwise being skeptics. Well, you don't need to be outside the church to be a skeptic. Even the disciples were skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> and, exactly. and, you know, and the beauty of it is, is that, you know, when, when the father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He doesn't say, he doesn't say there, listen to him. This is the last time he's going to talk. If you don't get it now, you're done <laughs> it, right. because Jesus is going to constantly be with them. And if we remember what John says in his gospel, um, Jesus is the word made flesh. And then as Jesus, even as he ascends, you know, out of our sight. Does he leave us alone? And the answer, of course, is no. He, he is still with us as the word that is being given to us which within each of our divine services, in our Bible studies, in the, in the, in the Lutheran church especially, etc. So on, he continues to abide with us by his word, the word with the water, the word with the bread and the wine, etc. So on, so he's constantly with us. Continue to listen to the word that is con that is with you. Anything else you want the folks to know before we come down off the mountain? I think that's pretty good for now because we're kind of getting into the to the meat and potatoes part of the of the gospel here with the with regard to the the the, the father in Mark chapter nine. That's right. So we had Jesus in this mountaintop moment. Now they've come down the mountain and now they're in the valley. Let's see what happens. Starting with verse fourteen. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and 
they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted it up, and he arose. And he had entered, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And that's uh, the all of our text for today. So, yeah, so coming down the mountain, big crowd, there's a commotion going on. And Jesus, already knowing, I'm sure, says, what are you guys arguing about? Take us through it, brother. Well, there's a lot. I mean, this this particular section is that, you know, we're, we're, we're once again in Mark's gospel, going from the miracles to the teaching. We're, we're going from the, the signs that are pointing to the death and resurrection. And... The, the teaching and the word of God that, that, that our Lord is going to abide with his disciples with. So that's all happened to this particular point. And then interestingly enough, we get to this point in the gospel where they're, they're down in the valley, they're down off the mountain. And, and then here are these scribes again, but not just the scribes, but who's arguing with them, the other disciples. Okay. And, and what are they arguing about? Well, okay. They're arguing with themselves and they're asking and Jesus asked the question. And so what they find then if nothing more, is is this father comes to him and he and he says uh, he says verse eighteen is wonderful because it sort of start, it starts to set the tone. There's really two parts in this last part that we just read or you just read is to say, well, they weren't able to cast this out. They weren't able to cast this demon out. Okay, why? And I think the answer is very simply is that okay, here are the disciples who have been following Jesus for for quite a while a while now. And I think the easiest thing to say is, is that they're, you know, I mean, contrary to what our evangelical friends might say is that, you know, that they, they didn't have enough earnestness or they didn't pray hard enough or whatever it happens to be. That's not the case. I think there's something even more common and, 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 and true for the disciples as it is for us. They're curved in on themselves. They couldn't possibly see um, what it was that this particular father was in need of. Um, and, and you see that you, you see that, you know, before in terms of the father's request in, in verse 22, the father's requesting, what does he request from him? If you can do anything, have compassion. And, and that word, that word in the Greek is one of the most fun ones that I think we have, uh, you know, President Harrison talks about this often, splachna, this, this pouring your guts out, Jesus, pour your guts out to us. Be merciful, have compassion on us. Um, But I want to go back to to verse 19 is to say, you know, here's Jesus who's getting to this particular point. He's just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, as true God, but also true man, 
we see here a bit of exasperation. <laughs> yeah, I love that part. I really do, yeah. honestly. Yeah, because because we're you know we're not dealing with you know we're not though Jesus is God, he is he is perfect, he is holy, etc. So on. This exasperation is 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 honestly. I remember hearing this. It was a Christmas sermon a number of years ago, and the pastor had asked the question, uh, or really he made a point and then asked the question. He said, "I've really only I've only preached the sermon that your pastor has preached to you." And then I tell the people at Calvary, "You've only ever heard one sermon from me. Um, I've never said anything new. I've only ever said the things that you've known before." And this goes back to the to, to the to the God the Father saying, "Listen to him." So I've told you this over and over and over again. And so the question then is in verse 19, who is the faithless generation? And, and as much as this may hurt our feelings, because we might say, well, it was just them then. We know more now. <laughs> and the answer is, uh, no, um, we are considered to be within that faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? is not to say, I can't wait to get back to heaven. I've got a bus to catch here in a little bit, uh, et cetera, so on. What he's saying is, I'm with you. I've shown and revealed to you everything that, that pertains to our sin, to our unbelief, to the wretchedness and the darkness of this world. I am the light that has come in, into this world to, to, to enlighten the darkness and to give you comfort and peace. And yet, as I've just seen with the disciples and I watch you argue over these things, it's clear that you haven't been listening. <laughs> right. So in other words, the, sort of the MO of the disciples yeah. and really it's a reflection of us too. Yeah. And so I, I, I think we can take that part of the God of, of, of verse 19 is to say, how long must I be with you? You don't even see that I'm here. You're not listening. <laughs> it's just to say, I continue to talk, but you it's falling on deaf ears. And I think that's the other thing that's really interesting once we get to this, this spirit. What, what does Mark tell us about this spirit? Well, he's mute, and we understand what being mute means is that he can't speak. But the other thing is, is that, that Mark says is that he's deaf. Then the question that I have is, well, how does a deaf spirit then hear this word of God? Hmm. And I think this is an amazing thing to understand is that, okay— you know, how is it that you, you, you have this word? It's, there's so many different scripture references that go with this is to say, okay, hearing is not necessarily the things that we do with our ears. Of course it is that, but what we see is that, you know, it goes back to what the prophet Isaiah says is that the word, my word will not return to me void. So for this demon who is a creature is he is hearing and he's not necessarily hearing audibly, but he, and I think that's that's really not the necessarily the great the great emphasis. The great emphasis of verse uh, of, of this section is to say Jesus continues to speak, even though the demons and even his own people are deaf to what it is that he's saying. He will not stop talking to them. And what a beautiful comfort that is for us is to say, as deaf as we are, as deaf as we remain. The word of God, Jesus himself, will not stop coming to us, and he'll not stop speaking to us. It's, it's, it's wonderful how it is that I think Mark addresses that in this section. Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, <laughs> as I'm just sort of contemplating everything you're saying and looking back through the text and such, you know, we, we also see, I guess, symptoms, very clear symptoms of what we might chalk up to be an epileptic disorder, 
Um, and so when I read this, the first time I read through it, I thought, well, is there anything in the text that suggests that it was an epileptic disorder and they were chalking it up to a demon wrongly? But no, it makes it very clear that it was a, a, an unclean spirit, a demon that is causing this for, for the, the young man. Jesus cast it out. Otherwise, he, he, if it wasn't there, he wouldn't cast it out. But mm-hmm. what it does is it raises the question that a lot of people struggle with. And in fact, uh, I have a meeting, a monthly meeting with fellow pastors of different religious traditions. It's a ministerium. A lot of pastors do this. And uh, we were just talking about this. You know, In today's day and age, for instance, we don't have the advantage of Jesus to know what's mental illness and what is demonic. Uh, Jesus does. But today, you know, how often are people to dismiss the demonic because they'll just chalk it up to mental illness? Mm-hmm. And of course, how often has the church chalked it up to demonic possession when we just didn't fully understand mental illness? So how do right. we wrestle, wrestle with those today? Uh, no, I, that's, a, that's a great point. And I mean, certainly apropos for the day and age that we're living in. And we, a couple of weeks ago um, at Calvary, we're in the one-year uh, lectionary. And, and um, for Trinity, no, I can't remember if it was Trinity 20 or Reformation Sunday. Where, where Jesus in, in Matthew 11 is saying, okay, well, what do what does evil do? What does evil do? And, and the answer is, is, is um, it's in reference to John the Baptist being in prison. And what it's saying is that is evil comes and brings violence. Okay, so to your point, Pastor Boo, and to the listeners who are there, you know, I think we would agree whether it's demon possession or mental illness, what we as Christians can understand is that there is a violence that is being perpetuated upon us. There's something unnatural that's happening to us that causes us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. And that works with our sin, unfortunately, that's our natural state. Um, so I think the point to, to, to both of the instances that you brought up is to say, you know, I think for myself as a pastor, you know, I'm not, I'm not trained to, to make, you know, the discernment, you know, whether or not somebody is mentally ill or, or demon possessed at all. But it goes back to the point that I think Mark is making in his gospel is to say, regardless of whatever it is that is making us deaf, my own self-interest, my own idolatry, um, my preoccupations, um, schizophrenia, epilepsy, whatever it happens to be, what is it that provides us comfort? And I think that's the key. Not what is it that provides me healing from this? Because, you know, we understand that, you know, though Jesus will come and die and rise again, you know, after the day of resurrection, things are not all roses for the disciples. Um, they will have tremendous suffering as they continue to travail through this sinful world. But that's the emphasis of Matthew 11 from the text of the text I was, I preached about a couple of weeks ago is to say, um, though it will maybe not be done away with, it is overcome. And it is overcome in the sense that our Lord continues to abide with us to give us comfort though we continue to be and to suffer violence in whatever form or fashion that may be this side of heaven. So um, I don't know if that answers the question or even addresses the point. No, I think it does address it, yeah. I I, I do. I I think it does because I think we could certainly get into a long conversation about uh, demon possession, that sort of stuff, and that's not really the scope of what we want to do. But you you hit on the, the right thing, which I think if I could simplify it, it's just to say, that all of these things are the products of sin, mm-hmm. um, whether it's demonic possession or mental illness or physical illness, all of it are symptoms of death. And of course, we look to Christ, who is the answer to all those issues. 
and and I, but you know, we mentioned it earlier, shifting gears just a little bit. I love also, you know, we get a little lesson here about how we should address God. Uh, you know, if you can, and Jesus is, you know, if you can, but then he says something curious. He doesn't say all things are possible for me because I'm God. He says all things are possible for one who believes. Uh-huh. And then probably my favorite line, the man says, oh, I believe also help my unbelief. And boy, if that's, that should be in Latin on the, on every Lutheran seal, because that, that's, mm-hmm. that's the Christian life, right? We do believe thanks be to God and how much we struggle with that belief. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the beauty of the explanation to the third article of the creed. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a convert to, to Lutheranism, you know, as an adult and you know, how, we understand that in the third article, the explanation is, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. But you're, 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 to your point in verse 23, what Jesus is saying, all things are possible for one who believes. Believes what? Believes the word of God. And this goes back to the words of the Father that are spoken back on the transfiguration. And Paul will talk about this too. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God that is given to us. And then immediately, and this is the beautiful thing, is that, you know, and then this is, the, I think, the crux of the gospel. Um, maybe not the gospel, but certainly of this chapter. Because a lot of times we as Christians say, well, it's, you know, it's, you know being holy, uh, being righteous, being a Christian is all about, you know, this moral way of living, this, this sort of pious way of carrying ourselves, being strong, so to speak, in the faith. But if we see anything with this father in this particular text is that, okay, he's, he's crying out if you can, and that's almost a cry of desperation. If nothing more, I've tried everything else and I found it wanting. If you can, because you're the last house on the block, so to speak, Jesus, uh, the, the, the father says, I believe I've heard what it is that you've said. That's why I'm here. And help my unbelief is, is really, that's, that's where we begin to see how holiness is given to us. Holiness is given to those who are and do have unbelief because Jesus gives us the word and the spirit then gives us that faith, uh, even to cry out. And that's what we talked about at the last part of the chapter is to say, when the disciples say, why could we not cast this out? And Jesus says, well, because this demon can only be cast out by virtue of prayer. And what is, and this, we'll talk about this maybe in, in, at the end, is to say, well, what is prayer um, other than two things? Jesus is saying, and you disciples have been so curved in on yourself. Look back at this father who, if nothing more, has realized his inadequacy, has realized his, his lack, has realized his complete dependence upon something outside of himself and cried out for compassion and mercy and this light to be given to him. And you disciples haven't done this at all because you've constantly been trying to rely on your own understanding and your own your own works and your own hard works to try to make these things make sense. And so Jesus, that's how he ends ends our reading for today is, is in saying that with regard to the to the demon only being able to be cast out by prayer. Yeah, and I think this also, just reflecting on something else you said earlier too, you said that they were arguing amongst themselves about this whole situation. And Jesus has a, is a little exasperated, and his exasperation comes probably not a little bit from the fact that they're blind and deaf to his presence among them. 
I think it's fascinating how they, instead of arguing, they didn't just call Jesus, as you pointed out. He's there. He's with them in the in the literally right then. Yeah. So, but when he gets down to this part, he's like, "This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer." I, I've seen that now taken as okay. Now there are different kinds of demons, and each one requires a different sort of liturgical approach and you know now suddenly we got fodder for all kinds of books that are pretty unsubstantiated from scripture um just i guess what i'm saying is explain a little more what jesus means about this kind cannot be driven out and and by prayer as if i know some manuscripts even add fasting so right is obviously jesus wants to point to himself but what about those who take this as sort of a manual for how to deal with demonics? Well, I, I, once again, I think it goes back to the question that was asked previously concerning mental illness or, or demon possession or whatever it happens to be. Is that, okay, I, I think we can we can understand that there are, are, are certain ranks. There are certain uh, ones that are, are, are more powerful or, or affect or afflict um, the ones they possess uh, in different ways. Um you know, and so I, I, I think that's where I have to leave it really specifically here. Cause you know, like you said, the fodder for books, et cetera, so on, I think in, if nothing more, we're maybe left as Christians just with, with regard to conjecture, because I think the emphasis is not so much on the word kind, this kind cannot be driven out. I think the emphasis that Mark is saying here is that, um, basically this kind or, or or this affliction or whatever it happens to be can only be overcome by the complete and utter reliance upon God to give what is lacking or what is deficient and to give that which overcomes this. And I think you see that because, you know, here's the demon um, who's coming to him and regardless of, you know, he's deaf and mute, but he hears Jesus, convulses the boy, um, how he how does he hear him well that's that's neither here nor there what we know is that jesus speaks and and by virtue of that it goes back to the creation you know jesus speaks to nothing and it hears and there's light uh jesus speaks to to lazarus in a tomb who's dead four days and he says lazarus come out how does a dead man hear the word of god spoken i i don't i don't know i don't under i, I can't comprehend that in terms of you know, the, the biology, physiology of, of how hearing works, except to say Jesus speaks and things happen. And I think that's the thing that, that Jesus is, is admonishing his disciples to say is that, okay, in, in everything by virtue of prayer, fasting, supplication, whatever it happens to be, what is prayer, what is fasting, but reliance upon God who will, pro who will provide everything that we need. Exactly. I think it's definitely a shift from, you know, in just considering human nature, so many, even faithful Christians, use prayer as a last resort instead of a first resort. Exactly. And, and so I imagine in this situation, they've done everything, and I'd love to see all the things they tried, but probably, right. in, <clears throat> pardon me, probably in, in, in imitation of Jesus and others they have saw, they were trying to cast them out, and then, yeah, I guess the point ends up being, you know, well, what happens in prayer? Well, in prayer, you're basically saying, fine, I can't do it myself, Lord, do this for me. And right. that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I, you know, I'm here. I can do this, and I'm going to be with you always. But he says that elsewhere. Well, we're at the end of our time. Uh, last couple of minutes are all yours if you want to make a final point before we go. 
Well, I think it just, you know, this is uh, not necessarily conjecture, but I, I like how, I mean, I, other commentators, specifically Vels had, had addressed uh, verse 26. Is that okay? To this particular point, as we go back to the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, the, the people are saying, you know, most of the people said, well, he's dead. And so Vels, I think it's interesting in the Concordia commentary says, well, was he actually dead? Uh, and we don't know. We don't know one way or the other. But what we do see is an emphasis on the resurrection. And the second thing that we see there, too, is in verse 20, 26, we see first Jesus speaks. And we see this with the man that Jesus, you know, sort of, you know, he he uh, he speaks ephetha to, who, who puts his fingers and spits on his tongue, et cetera, so on. First Jesus says the words, and then Jesus does the action, and that's what we see in verse 27. So he speaks. The, the, the demon leaves him, the boy convulses, it's almost as if he's dead. If nothing more, what we see is that Jesus then will raise this boy back from being demon-possessed. And then verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose, etc., so on. And that that particular language there, I think, is similar to what we've seen in the, in the, the language of the transfiguration, is Jesus is constantly emphasizing the radiance, the, the the beauty of the resurrection of the dead that is not just for him, but is for us and all who believe, namely who believe the word of God that has been given to us by our Lord. Excellent. And thank you so much, brother, for being on the show. It's always great to have you on. I always learn so much. That has been the Reverend Adam DeGroat, pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Thanks, brother. Pleasure to be here. Folks, tomorrow when we get together, well, we continue in Mark chapter 9 with verse 30. After predicting his death and resurrection, Jesus then teaches his disciples privately as they pass through Galilee, but they don't understand what he's saying. They're afraid to ask him for more information, but Jesus ultimately urges humility and service and care for the vulnerable, removal of temptation and unity and peacemaking too. Through warnings and moral lessons, Jesus prepares them for his betrayal and death and for the trials to come. And hopefully this text will prepare you to live your life as a disciple of Jesus. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hand.